You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Psalm 95, and let's bow our heads together before we begin. Father, it is the desire of your people to know and to hear your word, to love it and to obey you through it, and that you would give us grace to do that. That is our prayer. We ask that you would open our eyes to behold in your word wonderful things, give us hearts which are tuned to hear the voice of the shepherd in the pages of scripture, and to respond appropriately to him. Help us to understand those things which are Not necessarily difficult to understand, but difficult to embrace. We pray that you'd grant to us illumination by your Spirit and that our time here in your Word may be profitable for your people to encourage us and equip us and to uh, to serve to edify us in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 95 is, um, I think, one of these psalms or one of these passages in the Old Testament which sort of lies behind the events of John 10. Um, if I wanted to pull something out of the Old Testament and sort of paint a backdrop for John 10, this would be one of the passages that I would use. And it, it would strike me if, if, if a Jew had known Psalm 95 really, really well and then had stood in the temple and watched John 10 unfold and to listen to what Jesus said, I think any Jew would have said, wow, look at that. Look, look at that, Psalm 95 and what we're seeing here. This is incredible. Not that Psalm 95 is a prediction of it, but the language of Psalm 95 is almost used, used freely by John in John 10 when he communicates to us the Good Shepherd discourse that Jesus gave in the temple. Uh, I want you to notice with your Bibles in Psalm 95, I want you to notice a couple of things. I want you to notice, first of all, who it is that is called our shepherd. This is a psalm that refers to us being the sheep of God's pasture, and the, consequently the Lord is our shepherd. So Psalm 95, look at who is described as our shepherd. Let us sing joy to the Lord. He is called the Lord in verse 1. He is called the rock of our salvation in verse 1. We are to give Him thanksgiving in verse 2 to shout joyfully to Him with the Psalms. This person is the Lord. He is a great God and a great King above all gods. He is the one who created the depths of the earth and the peaks of the mountains are His. The sea is His for He who made it and His hands formed the dry land. That is the one who is called our great shepherd. Who is this one? He is the King of our salvation, the rock of our salvation, the King of kings, the King above all gods. He is the one who created all things. And then in verse 6, the psalmist says, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God. And we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. So who is this one that we are to respond to as our shepherd? He is the Lord. He is our God. That is why John 10, when Jesus calls Himself the Good Shepherd, it is a claim to deity. Jews understood exactly what that is. You walked up to any Jew and asked him, Who is your shepherd? Any Jew would have said, Psalm 23, verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd. And then when Jesus shows up, He says, I am the shepherd of the sheep. What was He doing? He was taking the language of the Old Testament and He was applying it to Himself, claiming to be the shepherd of the people of Israel. Claiming to be God. It was a claim to deity. And notice also in Psalm 95, the warning against unbelief. Not only who's called our shepherd, but the warning against unbelief. In verse 7, Verse 8, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. What is he describing there? 
He's describing the generation of the group of people who came out of the land of Egypt into the wilderness, and then they rebelled by refusing to go into the promised land. So rather than hearing the promises of God and recognizing that God is our shepherd, He will lead us. We can trust Him. He has promised this. He will deliver this. We can submit to Him. We can believe His word. Instead, they rebelled and said, we don't want to go in. We won't go in. And so God says, then all of you will die. You'll spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness, and all of you will die in unbelief, which they did. They died because of their unbelief. And that was when God said, I loathe this generation for 40 years. They are a people who err in their heart. They do not know my ways. They are rebellious people. So verse 11, therefore I swore in my anger, they shall not enter into my rest. God was not going to take the generation who rebelled in the wilderness and bring them into the promised land, a rebellious and wicked generation. He killed them off. He loathed them. They died and perished in the wilderness. And God said they will not enter into what it is that I have promised. And so all of them died in unbelief. So there is a contrast in Psalm 95 between those who believe and trust in the Lord and say, He is our shepherd. We are the sheep of His pasture. He is the creator of all things. We can trust Him. We can rest in Him. That's one group. Then there is the other group in the wilderness who said, no, no, we will not. We do not trust Him. We will not obey Him. And they did not enter into rest. Instead, they perished in the wilderness. Now think of that in terms of, of John chapter 10. Now flip over to John chapter 10. Think of what we have seen in John 10 and the context. We have seen one of the sheep of his pasture, the man once born blind, who now has received his sight. He has come to Jesus. He has confessed his belief. He has bowed down and he has worshipped Jesus. In the presence of that are these Pharisees who see this, hear the confession of faith, watch this man worship Jesus, and they are, what, believing or unbelieving? They are unbelieving, hardened in heart, having heard the promises of God through Christ, having heard the Word of God through Christ, having seen what He did, His miracles. They are exactly like the generation that came out of the land of Egypt, having seen His signs which they did. They walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. They saw the ten plagues in the land of Israel. They saw God deliver them with a mighty hand from the nation of Egypt. Then they, then they came out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea on dry land, and God provided banna. God provided water out of rocks. God provided everything that they needed for all that they were, all that they had there. And what did they do? They responded with unbelief. The generation, or these Pharisees, are just like that wicked generation. Having seen the miracles of Christ, having heard the promises of the Messiah, they respond with wicked unbelief. Now John 10 is describing the difference between, or, or, really explaining the difference between the hard-hearted, unbelieving Pharisee and the man once blind in John 9. The man once blind in John 9 is the one who recognized the shepherd of the sheep. And he bowed down and he worshipped him. And you could have quoted Psalm 95. Come let us worship and bow down. For he is our maker and we are the sheep of his pasture. That's exactly what the man in John 9 did. Then you have in that very instance the Pharisees who are just like the generation that came out of the wilderness, hard-hearted, responding to the same miracles with with unrepentant unbelief. Now you say, why is it that the man once born blind believed, but the Pharisees remained unbelieving? Why is that? What explains that? The short answer is in chapter 10, verse 26. You do not believe because you're not of my sheep. That's the short answer to the question. But let me flesh that out just a little bit. Why is it that the man born blind believed and the Pharisees did not believe? Is it because the man born blind had seen miracles? He saw the miracle. Well, how many miracles had the man born blind seen? He hadn't really seen any miracle. All of a sudden he could see. That was the miracle itself. But he was only witness to or privy to one miracle that Jesus did. And that was the one done on himself. 
How about the Pharisees? How many miracles had they seen? They saw the miracles of chapter 2. They saw the miracle of chapter 5. They were aware of the miracles in chapter 6. Now they have seen the miracle of a man born blind receive his sight. They cannot refute that miracle. They cannot explain it away. And they stand in the presence of all of that evidence and they will not believe. And ultimately, they would see Lazarus raised from the dead and they would not believe. In spite of all of the miracles that were done, they would not believe. So did the man born blind, did he believe because he saw a miracle? Pharisees had seen far more miracles than the man born blind. How about the man born blind, did he believe because he knew the Scriptures better than the Pharisees? Man born blind had never read a line of Hebrew text in his life. He's never held a passage of Scripture and read it. But the Pharisees, they are experts in the law. They have memorized the Scripture. They knew it. So why does this poor blind beggar believe and the Pharisees who have seen all of this evidence They have read the Scriptures. They understand it. They see it. They have watched all of this and they hear the same teaching from the lips of Jesus. Why do they remain in unbelief? 10 verse 26. For this reason you remain unbelieving because you are not of my sheep. You see, the difference between the man born blind and the Pharisees is that one of them belonged to Jesus and the others did not. Therefore, one of them believed and the others did not. This is John chapter 10. This is a Good Shepherd discourse that is delivered toward the Pharisees. And you remember the analogy that we've been talking about or looking at? It is the analogy of the sheepfold with all the flocks from all the different sheep uh, uh, shepherds put into one place with the door and the keeper inside the, the sheepfold who, when he hears the shepherd approach the sheepfold, opens the door, the shepherd calls his sheep by name, and they come out to him. And when he puts out all of his own, he leads them out to pasture. We've seen that Jesus in John 10 is the sincere shepherd, verses 1 and 2, because he is the one who has legitimate ownership rights to the sheep inside the sheepfold. What is it that distinguishes Jesus from thieves and robbers? Thieves and robbers don't own any of the sheep inside the sheepfold. But Jesus does own sheep inside the sheepfold that are mingled around with humanity. So just as a shepherd would walk up to the sheepfold, the sheepfold, call out to his sheep, and they would come to him, so Jesus comes to all of humanity. He calls out to all of humanity and his sheep. They come to him. All of them come to him. That's the analogy. Now, we, to review, we looked last week that Jesus is a summoning shepherd. And I suggested to you that in verses 3 through 5, the key point in verses 3 through 5 has to do with the shepherd's voice. We see it in verse 3. We see the voice mentioned in verse 4. And we see the voice mentioned in verse 5. The central idea here is the call of the sheep. And I suggest, call to the sheep. And I suggested three things that the voice of the shepherd does for his sheep. First, it provides a means of calling his sheep to himself. And second thing that the voice of the shepherd provides is an evidence of his ownership of the sheep. Last week we looked at this call. It is not a general call, just a gospel proclamation. It is an individual specific call that God uses to summon his sheep so that they come to the shepherd. Today we're going to look at the second and third thing that the voice of the shepherd provides. And that is evidence of his ownership of the sheep. And then second, in verse 5, security for the sheep. So the first is evidence of ownership for the sheep. Let's read verses 3 through 5 again. And then we'll look at this evidence of ownership. Verse 3, To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. One of the distinguishing marks of this entire discourse is this issue of the ownership of the sheep. This is the distinguishing mark. In fact, if you take the whole idea of the shepherd owning a certain portion of this sheep, if you take that out of the discourse, then it just becomes a mumbled bunch of nonsense. It's almost indistinguishable. It's unclear entirely what Jesus might be talking about. The whole point of the the parable is that the shepherd owns certain sheep. They're his. 
And because they are His, He doesn't have to climb over a wall to get to them. He just simply has to stand and call, and they come. And they respond to Him. Why? Because they are His. And because they are His, they believe. Now, if you take out the idea of the ownership of the sheep, then what, is the, what does the analogy mean? It doesn't mean anything. It's just nonsense. You can't draw any spiritual truth out of this. But once you understand that the central issue here is this idea of ownership, then suddenly it becomes clear. The man born blind believed because he belonged to the... Let me try that again without all of the extra syllables. The man born blind believed because he belonged to the shepherd. The Pharisees did not believe because they did not belong to the shepherd. So the issue is ownership. And Jesus distinguishes, and He has no problem distinguishing between those who are His and those who are not. And by having no problem distinguishing between, I'm not saying that He simply knows those who are His and those who are not. Jesus has no problem saying to people, you belong to Me and you don't. He was bold about that. He says it in John 6. He says it again in John 10 to the Pharisees. He is telling the Pharisees, you are not My people. You do not belong to Me. That is why you remain in unbelief. This man who is bowed down and worshipped, he's mine. He's my sheep. And so he has come, he has heard my voice, he has bowed down and he has worshipped, and he is mine for all of eternity. The issue is ownership. The issue is ownership. Take that out of the passage and you have absolutely nothing left. Now every Christian who is here, whatever your theological stripe, unless you're a heretic, every Christian who is here is going to agree that Jesus owns his sheep. Whether you are Reformed, or if you want to call that Calvinistic, that's fine. I would be in that camp. That's where I'm at. If you're Reformed people and Arminians would both agree that Jesus owns His sheep. They would affirm that Jesus owns a portion of humanity that are His, and that some belong to Him, and some, unbelievers, those who die in their sin, do not. Both theological stripes would affirm that. But here is what distinguishes between these two theological camps. It's really three questions. How is it that I became His? That's the first one. When did I become His? And by whose agency am I made His? How did I become His sheep? When did I become His sheep? And by whose power did I become His sheep? Those three questions. How? How did I become His sheep? Was it by virtue of my choice? Or was it by His choice? Second, when did I become His sheep? Was it at the moment that I believed that I made myself His sheep? Or was I His before eternity began? Third, by whose agency did I become His sheep? Was it something that I did? I gave myself to the Father as or to the Son as to become His sheep? Or was I given by the agency of another, by the Father to the Son? Those three questions. How did I become His sheep? When did I become His sheep? And by whose power or agency did I become His sheep? We want to answer today those three questions. Now some of you might say, okay Jim, look, if all of us can agree that we are His sheep, why go any further than that and start picking on nits and splitting hairs and all of that stuff? Why divide the church or any church or any group of people into one of these two camps? It is not picking of nits to talk about these issues. If the Scriptures were silent about the answers to those questions, then it would be picking of nits and splitting hairs to try and talk about them. But listen, if Jesus Himself has taught on this issue and has answered the question, then to deal with these issues is not picking nits. It's simply taking what Jesus says at face value, considering it seriously, and embracing it. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to answer this que- these questions from Jesus' own words in the Gospel of John. How did I become His sheep? When did I become His sheep? And by whose agency did I become His sheep? How is this ownership initiated? 
How did I become his? We want to answer those questions. If Jesus has taught on it, and he has, then let's take him seriously. We're going to begin by going back to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And we're going to look at this idea of belonging to Jesus. And I know we were here, it was a couple years ago, we were in John 6 and studying that. And you, you're familiar with the language and now the context and all of that. So we're not going to spend a lot of time in John 6. I just want you to see and remind you again of what, John, what Jesus said in John 6. The context of John 6 and John 10 are very similar in terms of what was going on and what Jesus is addressing. In John 6, he is using the analogy of the bread of life to talk about this issue of a people that belong to him and their belief. And he is using in John 10 the analogy of the shepherd and the sheep to talk about these people who are his and belong to him and so they believe. Now in John 6, the, after, Jesus, after these people had seen the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples had seen Jesus walk on water. They showed up the next day and all of these people did not really believe what they wanted was more food from Jesus. And so he reproves and rebukes their unbelief in verse 35. But I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. That is a reproof. These, their unbelief was inexcusable. Inexcusable. They saw the miracles. They heard his teaching. They heard his gracious invitation, and they remained unbelieving. And in verse 36, he is reproving them for their unbelief. So now the question becomes, the whole crowd now remains in unbelief having seen all of this. So the theological question that we might ask is, is it possible that with all of these people who are turning away from him and remaining in unbelief, is it possible that the saving plan of God should be thwarted? Is it possible that what God intended to do and to have done in his redemption of mankind, that that plan should be thwarted and undone? Is that possible? Or, has God secured the belief of some and secured the salvation of some by His own gracious choice? Verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Notice that there is no uncertainty whatsoever in verse 37 about the response of those whom the Father has given to the Son. All that the Father has given to me, the Father has given a people to the Son, all of them will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Jesus does not say this. The Father has given to me all of humanity. And I desperately hope some of them will come. Because they have free will. And some of them might be lost. But I hope as many as possible come. Is that what he said? Jesus knows. The Father has given to me a people. He knows those who are His. Chapter 10. He knows whom the Father has given to Him. He came to seek them. He came to save them. He came to purchase their redemption. He knows who belongs to Him and who does not belong to Him. And He says, of all of the ones that the Father has given to Me, all of them will come. How many will be lost? How many will not come? One, two, ten? How many are going to not come? Of those whom the Father has given to the Son, how many of them will come? All of them will come. Not one will be lost. It's impossible. Why is it impossible? Because Jesus, verse 38, came down from heaven not to do His own will, but the will of Him who sent me. That is the Father. Verse 39, this is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, notice the reference there to the Father giving to Him a people. He has a people. He owns some people. Of all that the Father has given to me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Here's the promise. The Father has given to me a group of people. All of them will come to me. All of them who come to me, I will receive. Why would He turn them away? Right? What the Father has given to the Son, the purpose of the Son is the same as the purpose of the Father. So when the Father gave some to the Son, 
It was the purpose and intention of the Son to save them. Why would He turn away those whom the Father has given to Him? He wouldn't do that. He will embrace all of them. So of those that the Father has given, all of them will come. Having come, all of them will be received. Having been received, all of them will, in the words of verse 40, behold the Son, He will give them eternal life, and He will raise them up on the last day. Not some, not most, not the vast majority, but all. But just notice that the Father has given to the Son a group of people. Chapter 6. And those people will be raised up on the last day. No uncertainty there. Jesus has no problem speaking about a group of people who have been given to Him by His Father. Now turn over to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. John chapter 17 is a a marvelous passage, and here's why. You have in John 6, Jesus speaking about the Father giving Him a people. You have in John 10, Jesus describing Him gathering those people to Himself. And now at the end of His life in John chapter 10, you have Jesus talking to the Father about the people that He gave to Him. 17 is incredible. This is the high priestly prayer. This is Jesus interceding and not praying for unbelievers. He is praying for this group of people that have been given to Him by the Father. He is discussing with the Father this love gift, this people that have come to Him, whom He has now gathered in. And the disciples are among that, of course, and more people after that will come, which is us. We are part of that who have been gathered in now. So look at verse 2. Even as you gave Him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given Him, and He's speaking of Himself in the third person, to all that you have given Him. The Father has given to whom? To the Son, a group of people. Look at verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Look at verse 9. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now notice the distinction there between the world and those who belong to the Son. Right? Does everybody belong to the Son in the sense that we're talking here? Does everybody belong to Jesus in this sense? No. The Father has given some to the Son, not all. There are those in the world, and He says, I'm not asking anything on behalf of them. I'm asking on behalf of those whom you have given to me. Look at verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world. There's the world, the group of people, the whole fold, all the other sheep in the fold. And then there are those inside that fold whom the Father has given to the Son. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. Okay, so that is the giving of the Father to the Son. Now look back in John chapter 10. Again, the Good Shepherd discourse, verse 3. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name. Verse 4, when he puts out all his own, he goes ahead of them. Verse 12, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep. This whole analogy is about Jesus' ownership of his sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep, verse 16, which are not of this fold. That's a reference to Gentile sheep and the fold being the nation of the Jews. And Jesus is saying, out of the Jews, I have some that belong to me. Out of the Gentiles, I have some that belong to me. And I'm going to gather all of them into one flock so that they will be one flock with one shepherd. So John 6, John 10, John 17, we can look at other chapters in John, but those three passages are sort of consolidated references to this group of people whom the Father has given to the Son. Now back to our questions. How do we become His sheep? When do we become His sheep? And by whose agency do we become His sheep? First question, how do I become His sheep? Is it by my own choice of Him or is it by His choice of me? How do I become His? If it's my own choice of Him, 
We haven't read anything about that in John 6, 10, and 17, have we? What we have read about is the choice of the Father to give to the Son a people. So is it my choice or is it the Father's choice? It is the Father's choice. Which choice reigns supreme? It is the Father's choice. He chose us in eternity past before the foundation of the world. He picked out of humanity and gave this group of people to His Son. By who, uh, sorry, how did I become his sheep? My choosing or his? It was his choosing. Scripture always says that. It is his choice of us. His choice of us. That's the blessed doctrine of election and the giving of, uh, giving of the Father to the Son. Now the second question, when do we become his? Is this at a point in eternity past? Or is this at a point of time when I believe? Is it when I believe that I make myself from not his to his? Or is this something that happened before I believed? John 6.37, All that the Father has given to me past will come to me future. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? There's nothing confusing about that. When did this happen? A group was given by the Father to the Son, not individually as each person makes a decision and comes to the Son, but before eternity, before time began, the Father gave these people to His Son. The Father gave them, and they will come. Verse 16 of John 10, I have other sheep which I will also gather in. He owns them beforehand, and He gathers them in in time. So the purpose and the plan and the intention of God in eternity past is manifested in time, but it is not determined in time. It is manifested in time in that I repent and I believe and I recognize that I am His, and I bow down and I worship and I am given salvation. But all of that grace, Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.9, was granted to me in Christ from all eternity. So, how do I become His? His choice or mine? His choice. When do I become His? In time or in eternity? In eternity. In eternity past. At some point before a single angel or Adam was created. The Father said to the Son, Son, I love you so much. I'm going to give you a group of people. They're going to be your bride. Go save them. And the Son said, I will do it. And I will lose none of them. None of them will perish. I will gather them all in all my sheep. What kind of a shepherd fails to gather in all his sheep? A failure of a shepherd. Now, if you're on the other side of the theological divide and you say, well, hold on, I'm an Arminian. I don't believe that we become His sheep in eternity. I believe it's in time. And I don't believe it's His choice. I believe it's mine. Then you have one of two positions. You have to say either that Christ owns all the sheep in the world. Everybody is His. All of humanity is given to Him by the Father. Not a select group, but all of humanity. In which case, He has failed to bring in the vast majority that the Father has given to Him. The vast majority are lost, not saved. Then He is a pathetic high priest, for He has not secured their salvation. He has not interceded for them. He is a pathetic shepherd because He has been given a hundred sheep and He's gathered in one. Or you would have to say that the Father has given to the Son no sheep whatsoever but that the Son stands outside the sheepfold and calls and tries to pick sheep from other flocks and make them His own. In which case, He is a thief and a robber. So either by Arminian theology, either Jesus is a complete failure or He is a thief and a robber. Which one of those do you want? You choose. little tongue-in-cheek there. Your choice. You choose whether you want to believe Jesus is a failure or whether He is a thief and a robber. But if we say that it is not my choice, but it is His choice, it is not in time, it is in eternity, then He is a good shepherd. He is not a thief. He is not a failure. He is not a robber. 
He will save all that the Father has given to him. That is his promise. Friends, this is the blessed beauty of this doctrine. Some people say, we don't talk about election. We don't talk about the sovereignty of God because it makes God seem begrudging and unfair with his salvation. Listen, if you think all men deserve salvation, but God has only chosen to save some, then he is begrudging and unfair. But if your view of man is that all of humanity is locking, walking in lockstep, shoulder to shoulder, toward the great abyss of eternal damnation by their own choice, by their own affections, by their own desires, and this is what they want. But God in His sovereign grace has chosen some, and He grabs them and turns them and plucks them out of that dying and perishing humanity for His own glory and because He has set His love on some. That's beautiful. That is gracious for a loving God to do that. Third, by whose agency did we become His? Was it by my making myself His? Or was it by the Father giving a people to the Son? We've already answered it. The Father has given a people to His Son. So what comes first, my believing or my belonging? Do I believe and then I belong to Him, or do I belong to Him and then I believe? I belong to Him and then I believe. It is because I belong to Him that I believe. Do you you get that? That is not difficult to understand. It's difficult to grasp in the sense of how does this all fit in with the fact that when I came to Him, I did not at all feel coerced. It seemed quite willing. But when I came to Him, I came to Him. So it is my belonging that secures my believing. When the Father gave me to His Son, my salvation was secure at that moment. In eternity past, when the Father gave me to the Son, my salvation was secure. It cannot be otherwise. So the voice of the shepherd provides a means of calling the sheep to himself, a proof of evidence of the sheep, the very fact that he can call to a sheep and they come to him, their response to him is evidence that they belong to him and they belong to him before he ever calls them. That's the point of the analogy in John 10. Now the third thing that the voice of the shepherd provides is security for the sheep. Security for the sheep in verse 5. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This is kind of a remarkable thing about the relationship between uh, shepherds and sheep in, uh, in the land of Palestine, the nation of Israel. When a shepherd would walk up to the sheepfold, he would call out, sometimes calling the sheep by name, but he had a unique call, and the sheep who were his recognized that call. And they would come to him, and they would come out of the sheepfold and wander up to him, and then he would lead them away, and they would follow. And it was his voice, or the calling of the shepherd to the sheep, which not only demonstrated they belonged to him, and they would come out, they would come out and they would follow him, and that voice secured them against two things. It secured them against some other shepherd calling them into his fold, and it secured them against having followed him out that they would wander off and follow after some other shepherd. So they were secure because of the shepherd's voice. And by the way, the doorkeeper who opened the door and the shepherd stood outside and called into the sheep, the doorkeeper never had to ask for a certificate of ownership for any of the sheep inside the sheepfold. You know why? Because the fact that they responded to his voice the way that they did was proof of the ownership. He didn't say, prove to me that sheep belongs to you. He would never have to do it. That sheep's following after his voice. That sheep belongs to him. There's no question. That itself is the certificate of ownership. It is also the security for the sheep. Philip Keller in his book, A Shepherd Looks at the Good Shepherd and His Sheep, writes this, The relationship which rapidly develops between a shepherd and the sheep under his care is to a definite degree dependent upon the use of the shepherd's voice. He quickly, They quickly become accustomed to their owner's particular voice. They are acquainted with its unique tone. They know its particular sounds and instructions. They can distinguish it from that of any other person. If a stranger should come along, Among them, they would not recognize nor respond to his voice in the same way they would to that of the shepherd. Even if the visitor should use the same words and phrases as that of the rightful owner, they would not react in the same way. 
It is a case of becoming actually conditioned to the familiar nuances and personal accent of the shepherd's call. End quote. And they've actually done studies, and they, they, they've done this in ancient times as well, where they would have somebody dress up like the shepherd of the sheep and imitate his voice and do a spot-on imitation. You could have Dana Carvey doing the imitation, dressed up as the shepherd of that sheep, and no matter how good it is, they're not going to respond to it. doesn't matter how close it is, they will not respond to it. It is something in the inflection, the accent, the tone that their ears are uniquely tuned to. And in this way, the shepherd secures his sheep really against two things. I want you to think of this, verse 5, in terms of, of two scenarios. The first is this. What if some of the sheep should come to the wrong shepherd? Right? Now let's take it out of the, 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 the analogy for a second and talk about this actually happening in spiritual terms with us coming after the wrong shepherd. Is it possible that the father should give this humanity to his son and say, son, save them. And the son should come to do all that the father gave him to do and he should come... But then some false shepherd, some Jesus lookalike, say the Jesus of Mormonism, or the Jesus of Jehovah's Witnesses, the Jesus of the New Age movement, or the Jesus of Harley Christians, the Jesus of any other false religion, that a false Jesus should be able to attract the attention of those sheep and have that one whom the Father gave to His Son wander away after a false Jesus and perish eternally. Is that possible? What does verse 5 say? The voice of a stranger they simply will not follow. Every other imitation of Jesus, every other shepherd in the world can call as they might, can do what they will, but the the true sheep will not follow after a false shepherd. Think of it in terms of the second scenario. What is it, or is it possible that the, the father could give a people to his son, and the son could come to save those people, and die on a cross and rise again and go back to heaven, and then that some of his sheep might follow him for a period of time, but then hear the voice of a stranger and follow after him. Is that possible? No. No. What do we make of people who, and I've, I've heard these testimonies from people, um, in fact, I've had them visit my doorstep, Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons. Yeah, I used to belong to a church, and I used to believe in the Trinity, I used to believe that Jesus is God, but then the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons showed up at my door, and I realized how wrong that is, that Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus is Michael the Archangel, the first and greatest creation of God. And so I left Trinitarian theology believing that Jesus was God, and now I have embraced this view of Jesus, which I believe to be the right one. Was that person ever his sheep? No. If they were, they would not have wandered away after some false shepherd. That's the promise of verse 5. J.C. Ryle calls this a spiritual instinct, and I think that that's a helpful designation, a spiritual instinct that all true sheep have. All true sheep have the ability to, to discern between truth and error. And they can hear the voice of the true shepherd. They hear the voice of a liar, a thief and a robber, and they say, no, 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 no. This one's true and this one's not. Every true sheep has the ability to distinguish between that. Now listen, the sheep who do not belong to Jesus, those of the world, they have no ability at all to discern between truth and error. None. If they listen to a sermon by John MacArthur and they listen to a sermon by Joel Osteen, it's all the same to them. It's just some guy talking about God's stuff. That's all it is. Or they look at two different churches and they see one that does this and one that does honors Christ and one that doesn't honor Christ. They have no ability to discern the difference between those two. It's just a church, right? The real question is, is their nursery convenient? Do they have good parking, good lighting, all that stuff in a stage show? That's the only thing that they're interested in. The world has no ability to distinguish between the voice of the true shepherd and the voice of an imposter. No ability whatsoever. True sheep do. True sheep know when their shepherd is being honored and when he is being dishonored. True sheep know when their shepherd is being exalted and when he is being put down. True sheep can hear that. The world, they can't hear it. They don't see any difference between the heretic Rob Ding Dong Bell and R.C. Sproul. They don't see any difference between it's just two guys talking about the God stuff. 
They have no ability to discern that whatsoever. But if you belong to Christ, listen, you have that ability. Your ears are tuned. You have a spiritual instinct to hear the voice of the true shepherd, and you come to him. You always come to him, and you can discern between truth and error. That was Jesus' promise in John chapter 8. You will know the truth. My disciples will know the truth, and the truth will set them free. True sheep know the truth, and they hear the voice of the shepherd. And they know when their shepherd is being dishonored. John writes in 1 John 2.20, and with this I close, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know that I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. What is the anointing of the Holy One that John speaks of in 1 John chapter 2, verse 20 and 21? This is the Holy Spirit. And John's saying, you know the truth, and you have the Holy Spirit, and for this reason I am writing to you, because you know the difference between truth and error, and you know that no lie is of the truth, because the true sheep can see that, and they can hear that, because they have the Spirit, and they belong to the Son. So the voice of the shepherd provides a means of calling a sheep. It provides a proof of ownership of the sheep, and it provides security for his sheep. He secures us both from deception, wandering away after a false shepherd out of the fold, and he preserves us and secures us from defection, that is, wandering away from the true shepherd after he has called us to himself. So what do we do with people who come for a period of time, they hang on, they play the Christian game, they make all the confessions of faith, they go through a firm statement of faith, They become members or whatever, and then pretty soon they wander off and wander away. What do we do with those who go out from us? 1 John 2.19, they were never of us to begin with. That's the point. And so they wander off. The voice of the shepherd does not secure goats in his flock. You understand that? The voice of the shepherd secures his true sheep, and goats will wander off after every other voice all the time. But those who truly belong to him, all that the Father has given to him will come. He will raise them up because they're the Father's gift to the Son. Make sense? Not? Yeah. Sure. All right. Let's bow together and before we partake of communion. Our Father, we are so thankful that You have done all of this work on behalf of those whom You have given to Your Son. You chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, and we can only say thank You. These are humbling things that we are confronted with. For we know that it was not our decision, it was not our spiritual ability, it was no natural capacity that we have, but only your sheer and sovereign grace and the power of your grace which has made us yours. We thank you for a shepherd of the sheep who has not only come to do all your will but to gather and to gather in all your people but secure all of those people for himself for all of eternity. We thank you that we are the objects of your grace and that you looked down upon us and loved us. We are humbled by that. May we never think in terms of being proud about that or pride-filled about that because it is, again, only by your grace that you have done it. We deserve nothing. We deserve wrath. And yet you have given us that which we do not deserve by your grace. So thank you that you have saved us. Thank you that you continue to sanctify us. And thank you that you have secured us for our eternal good and your eternal glory. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.